so this uh, is the, the fifth installment of our supplementary study of the spiritual gifts. It's the, the fifth and, and final examination of the spiritual gifts, we have two more gifts to look at. This is a, as a detour from 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14. And, and in, in the process of this, we, we've heard about buried treasure and football games and, and toolkits and, and jigsaw puzzles. But I hope in all of it you've seen that you are vital, that you are vital in this local church. And, and I say this to you men as well who are visiting, that, that as a Lord, as you, as you move on from Teen Challenge, that the Lord will place you in local churches and that He would, would equip you and empower you to serve in the churches into which He sends you. The Lord has sovereignly placed us in churches to serve together, to use the gifts that He has given us to build His church together with the gifts that He has given each one of us. And as you remember, I entitled this, this sermon series, Unwrapping the Church's Spiritual Gifts. They are not your spiritual gifts. They are the church's spiritual gifts. So let's review these gifts one more time. In the first sermon, we, we looked at three particular offices that were given to the church, that of, of apostle and prophet and teacher from, from 1 Corinthians 12. And, and these are are, are, these come up again here in Ephesians 4. And I explained that the offices of apostle and prophet have served their purposes in establishing the canon of Scripture, and so they no longer exist. But the office of the teacher, however, does continue and is one of the roles of pastors in the church. But, that, but the, sorry, in the second sermon, we, we looked at the more sensational gifts from 1 Corinthians 12, that of, of miracles and healing and tongues and the interpretation of tongues. And then in, I also explained actually in that sermon that, that although I believe that, that the, the Scripture does not make the case for their cessation, that, that the, the vast majority of what we see that is described as the gifts of the Spirit in this culture is something different from what the Bible is talking about. In the, ser- in the third sermon, we, we continue with the gifts from 1 Corinthians 12 of helping and administration and wisdom and knowledge and faith, and, and all of these are clearly, clearly necessary in the church today. In the fourth sermon, we looked at, at the final gift from 1 Corinthians 12, that of distinguishing between spirits. And then we, we went over to Romans 12 and looked at the gifts of exhortation, of giving, of leadership, and acts of mercy. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the two final gifts. And these are taken from the passage we just, we just looked at, Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 16. And you see it there um, specifically in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers, and then in verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And so this passage in Ephesians 4 has many similarities to 1 Corinthians 12 and to Romans 12. It, the central theme of, of the church's unity in the Spirit stands out. And Paul's commands to the church to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in verse 3, like in in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, here Paul repeatedly uses the word one. In fact, he uses the word one 11 times in these few verses. That should tell us something. 
Like in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, Paul uses the metaphor of the human body to describe the church. And also like 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, Paul explains that, that God has given gifts to the church to help it build itself up in love. And that's from verse 16 of Ephesians 4. But once again, as we look at these gifts, these gifts, the gifts, this list is not ex- exhaustive. There, there are other gifts that, that we're not really looking at here. They're not really explicit in these texts. And there is also overlap between many of the gifts. And, and there's also overlap between the gifts and many people. But no one person has all of the gifts. This, this highlights the fact that, that in the church, we all need each other. We, we need to work together. That's the Lord's sovereign plan in the church, that the church would work together so that it grows together in love. But as I mentioned last week, although the the church is the central focus of God's work in the world, the church is not an end unto itself. The church is meant to point to Christ. As the Lord draws His people from every nation, from every tribe and people and language together to worship Him here, this is a foretaste of the worship that we will enjoy around the throne of Christ forever in eternity. And so here in Ephesians 4, we we see like in in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, this, 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 this picture of gifts. And in verse 7, we see that this, this image of being given grace according to measure. And, and there's, a, there's a sense in which we have all have received grace. We've all received, if you're a Christian, you've received saving grace. But there's also a measure of grace that is given. There are some people that are given extra grace to serve. We're, we're all given, given a, an abundance of grace, but some of us have, have been given grace to serve in, in different areas of the church. And and that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. Verse 8, he says he gave gifts to men. And, and this is anthropoi. It's, it's men and women. And, and who serve it in different distinct roles uh, in the church, but, but are, are fundamentally equal as co-heirs of salvation in Christ. And then here in verse 11, we see it again, that, that he gave. He gave. And, and so the, the only two that, that are left on the list is there's, we looked at 17 so far. There's two more that we have to cover, and, and those are that of, of evangelists and shepherds. Evangelists and shepherds. And you see both of those there in Ephesians 4.11. So number 18. This is a, this is a, this is a 19-point sermon. Um, point 18. Evangelists. Now, I don't know if you realize it, but you have beautiful feet. You have beautiful feet. Now, don't take your shoes off. But did you know that you have beautiful feet? Paul says it in Romans 10, 16. He says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So some of you will have beautiful feet for the first time in your lives as you preach the good news. And this word that... that uh, we, we, we talk about evangelism. It actually comes from the Greek word euangelion, which, which simply means good news. So euangelion becomes evangelism and evangelists. Well, the verses prior 
in, in Romans 10 say that, that in verses 13 and 14, they say that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him who they've not believed? And how they're to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? If you're sitting here as a Christian, it means that somebody preached the good news to you. Somebody, whether it was, was a parent or a friend or a coworker or a pastor or a leader in Teen Challenge, someone loved God enough and someone loved you enough to preach the good news to you, to tell you the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, then we need to ask the question, do you love God enough and love people enough to share the good news with them? We're all called to preach the good news, not just preachers. In Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, which is also known as the Great Commission, Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. With that great commission, Jesus was not just commissioning the apostles, he was commissioning all Christians to make disciples, and you can't make disciples without evangelism. Can you imagine arriving on a small island in the South Pacific on August the 16th, 1945? That date might not be significant to you, but the date before August the 15th 1945 is very significant because that was the day in, in, in our hemisphere, that was the day that the, the Japanese signed an unconditional surrender to end the war in the Pacific. So it's known as, as VJ Day. August the 15th is VJ Day. But imagine arriving on that island and finding American and Japanese soldiers fighting furiously. Imagine arriving on that island and not telling them the good news that the war is over. These men are killing each other for nothing. The war is over. And brothers and sisters, our war with God is over because of what Christ did for us on the cross. Our war with God is over. So we need to tell we need to tell unrepentant men and women to surrender to God because Christ surrendered his life on the cross so that they don't have to go to hell. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5, 18-21. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that is in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Just think about what we've been given here. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation, not even reconciling Japanese and Americans. Although that will take place in the gospel as well. This is a reconciliation between the holy God and a sinful man. Beloved, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, think about this. God is making his appeal through us. We're dirt. We're clay. But the almighty God is making his appeal through us. What an incredible privilege that is. And we do this because we have been reconciled to God. So we implore a sinful people to be reconciled to God. And then here in verse 21, we have the gospel in a single verse. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ, who knew no sin, was made sin for us. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. And all of the Father's wrath for his people was put on his Son instead of on us. Christ took our guilt and Christ took our wrath. That should have been us. It should have been us. But the perfect lamb was sacrificed in our place. It was the will of the Father to crush him. The Father crushed his son when it should have been us who who would be crushed, not just for a moment, not just for a few hours, but crushed for all eternity because if we understand the depth of our sin, that is what we deserve. And no amount of punishment could ever, could ever fill that up because our sin is against an infinite, eternally glorious and righteous God. That's the good news, that we've been reconciled to that God by that Son of God. So I pray with that, that that, what's your response to that? ho-hum, meh. If you can meh the gospel, there is a problem in your heart. There's something lacking in your love for God. Now, I know that many of us face low seasons when we forget all that God has done for us in Christ, but if that is the predominant disposition of your heart, then there is something wrong. And many of us say, no, we, we love the gospel. We love the gospel. But if you never talk to anyone else about it, you need to question your love for God. If you don't share the gospel, your problem is, is a love problem more than anything else. It means that you don't love God enough and you don't love people enough. I've talked about this before, but you don't have to force grandparents to talk about their grandchildren. 
they love their grandkids, so they can't help but talk to others about their grandkids. Within minutes, they're going to be pulling um, photos out of their wallet. I've been corrected. We're pulling photos off their, their smartphone to tell you about their grandkids. But if you never talk to people about the gospel, you don't love God enough. So you need to repent and ask the Lord to help you. But I need to add this. If you never talk to unbelievers, you also need to question not just your love for God, but your love for those unbelievers. If I never seek to talk to my relatives or my neighbors or my coworkers about Jesus, I'm really not being very loving towards them. If they, if they die and go to hell and I've never told them the good news, some of that's on my head. In 1732... Moravians John Leonard Dauber and David Nitschmann planned to leave Germany to minister to African slaves on the Caribbean islands of St. Thomas and St. Croix. When they were told that they wouldn't be allowed, they actually sold themselves into slavery so that they could minister to the slaves, so that they could share the gospel with these slaves, so they could evangelize slaves. And so with the money that they received from selling themselves into slavery, they purchased their passage. And as the ship pulled out from the docks and, and, and their, their family was, was weeping on the dock knowing that they would never see these men again, they called out to the loved ones on shore saying, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. These men loved God and they loved those African slaves so they became slaves themselves. As you sit here this morning, do you believe that the lamb who was slain is worthy to receive the reward of his suffering? Do you love Christ enough to share the gospel with the lost? Do you love the lost enough to share the gospel with them? Now, I don't want to badger you into sharing the gospel, into sharing the good news. But I want to remind you of what Christ did for you so that you will eagerly share it at every opportunity. And if you want to love God more, the way to do it is to call to mind what He did for you in Christ. To, to think about it regularly. In, in our flesh, we don't naturally gravitate to the gospel. We gravitate to distractions and to the, the things that the world lifts up. We, we gravitate for, towards sin so often. But love for God will certainly grow in the rich soil of a heart and mind that is focused on the gospel. If the gospel is constantly on your heart and your mind, then it certainly will be on your lips. If the gospel is on your heart and mind, then you will, be, you will grow in your love for God. You will grow in obedience. You will grow in more, more in love with people. So you need to ask the Lord to make you a faithful evangelist. Ask Him to lead you to His elect and to give you the boldness and to give you the words. You need to ask the Spirit to be at work in the hearts of those that you speak to. This sermon comes bathed in prayer that the Lord would make this an evangelistic church. We call ourselves evangelicals. But are we evangelistic? 
also praying that, that the Lord will not only motivate us all as evangelists, that he will also empower us as evangelists. And it's also my prayer that he will do a special work in the, to gift you uniquely as evangelists. And that he will add to our number those who are gifted evangelists. And, and that's what, what the Apostle Paul is talking about here in Ephesians chapter 4. Let's, let's look there again. Ephesians 4, he says that, that evangelists are given as a gift to the church. And by that he means those, those who are specially gifted. And I think here of, of Philip in Acts chapter 8. Now that man had beautiful feet. Not all of us are going to be able to, to run to catch up with a chariot, and, and not all, all of us are going to, to be, be moved by the Spirit to another location. But all of us can, and all of us can explain the scriptures of, of Isaiah 53, and, and all of us can, can share the, the, the glories of, of 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 21 to someone. By God's grace, if you're here as a Christian, you can do that. Now, there's all kinds of, uh, of different methods of evangelism. There's, there's friendship evangelism and handing out tracts and doing surveys and street preaching and even inviting somebody to church. And we do plan as a, as a church to provide more opportunities and more training, but, but until then, we all have opportunities. We did have a, a couple of years ago, we had a couple of guys from, from Way of the Master to come and do, do training over a weekend. And I do commend that ministry to you. But we all, if you are here as a Christian, we all have the, the, the gift of the Spirit. We all have God's Word. So we need to be praying for, for boldness. We need to be praying for a willingness. We need to be praying for love for God and others. We need to be praying that we'll be living lives that make the gospel commendable. If, if you're walking in willful sin and then turning around and sharing the gospel to somebody, what does that say? You're not making the, the, the word very compelling. You're not, if, if you're not showing that, the, that your life has been transformed by the gospel. So we don't just, just preach the, the gospel with actions. We need to have words too, but, but our actions had better back up our words. But evangelists aren't just gifts to the church because of, of their evangelism. The gifts to the church because, again, in, in, Hebrew, in Ephesians 4, they equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So that, in verse 16, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it has been equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so evangelists help the church grow, not just numerically, although that will be happening, but they're, do, they're, they're used of God to equip us for ministry as well. So are you a Christian? Do you live in a place where there's people? Well, if you answered yes to those questions, then you can be an evangelist. The requirements aren't really high. Be a Christian, be around people. And I, and I hope that that... that well, I know that at least in the second it's true, but, but, but I hope that, that for all of us, we are Christians, that we will be faithful in the proclamation of the gospel. But evangelism isn't just someone else's job. God has called us all to, to evangelism. He has, he has gifted us 
some of us uniquely in that role, and maybe that someone is you. Second, and this one will be a little bit shorter because we've, we've covered a lot of this stuff already in our Bible study, but the final gift that we're going to be looking at, point 19 of this 19-point sermon, is shepherds. The final gift that, that we're looking at is, is shepherds. And this is really timely because, as I mentioned earlier, in a week and a half, Lord willing, we're going to be bringing David Vogt forward for the church to affirm as an elder. And in the lead-up to, to that, at David's request, he wanted the church to be able to make an informed de- decision, and so we spent four weeks of our Bible study examining what a pastor is and what the qualifications are. And so this word that, that's translated shepherds in the ESV is, is translated in most uh, major English Bibles. It's translated pastors. Both are actually equally valid, but Jesus used the same word in John 10, 10 verse 11 when he said, I am the good shepherd. The, shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And the, the Greek verb poimino means to shepherd. And the English word pastor actually comes from the French pasteur, which means shepherd. And the, the Spanish word, in Spanish, a shepherd is pastor. And the verb which was used by Jesus in John 21 when he reinstated Peter is, is, is the same word. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter replied, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And this, this verb that, that is, is translated tend is poimino, shepherd. And so Peter subsequently used this same word in, as this challenge to other ministers in 1 Peter 5, verses 2 to 4, when he said, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. And so he goes on to say in verse 4 that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And so, so Jesus is the archipoimane, the, the chief shepherd. And all other pastors are merely under-shepherds, under Jesus, the chief shepherd. Please turn for a moment in your Bibles to, to Acts chapter 20. And again, I'm going to go this, through this pretty quickly because we, we dealt with this more extensively in, in our Bible study. But I think it would be helpful for us all to hear it and, and for this review. Acts chapter 20, in, in verses 17 and following, Paul here uses the same word in his challenge to the Ephesian elders. Down in, in verse um, 28, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And, and so we see that there's in this passage, there's actually um, three words that are used to describe men who provide spiritual oversight in a church. And, and the three words, Three words are elder, overseer, and pastor. And these terms are used interchangeably in Acts chapter 20. In verse 17, Paul here we see, we see that he sent to Ephesus and he called the elders of the church to come to him. And the word for elder in Greek is presbyteros, which might sound familiar to you. It's, it's the same word that, from which we get the name of the Presbyterian denomination. In verse 28, Paul says, Again, pay careful attention to yourselves over the, all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And that word overseer, overseers is episkopos, from which we, we get the name of the Episcopalian denomination. 
And the verb that is translated to care for, to, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood, is poimino. Again, it's the same word. That, that it's, it's to shepherd. So, so an elder then emphasizes the, the spiritual maturity of a man who is called to lead in the church. The overseer emphasizes leadership, and the pastor emphasizes the role to, to, to teach and to feed and to protect. So you need to understand this, that this, the bottom line here is that an elder and a pastor and an overseer are, are all referring to the same office. They're just, they're emphasizing different aspects of that role. So Paul here in, in verse 28 says to pay careful attention to yourself. So what does he mean by that? Well, it's the same thing as he, as he is saying to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 16, to keep a close watch on your life and your doctrine. To keep a close watch on your life and your doctrine. And so he, he means to, that we should be vigilant to guard ourselves from sin. In order for a man to be qualified as an elder, his life must be characterized by the qualifications of, of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Now, I'm, I'm not going to go into detail of each one, about each one of them because, again, we did that in our Bible study. But, but these aren't just requirements for elders. All Christians, all Christians are required and called to be these things in their appropriate spheres. Let me just read 1 Timothy 3. Verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to... <clears throat> able to teach, not a drunkard. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he will become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be thought well of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. No, they're not going to be perfect, but they must be exemplary in these areas and, and because people are going to follow the example of their leaders. So it's essential that they are good examples. So, so an elder must be exemplary in these things. They, they must be walking in repentance when they fall short in these things. James 3.1, we read that, that not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, they're not judged, teachers are not judged with a higher standard, but they are judged with greater strictness. So, so we need to be careful here who, about who we affirm as elders. But that's just for starters. A man who's going to be, be a, a shepherd or a pastor in the church must have a genuine love for people must have a servant's heart. We need to know this man and to know his character. 1 Timothy 3.10 says that deacons must be tested first. And so if a deacon is to be tested first, then certainly elders must be tested as well. So again, are these men who are watching their life and their doctrine? Now, now elders will sin against you. I, I've sinned against some of you, even maybe many of you here. But by God's grace, I'll repent of that. And if, if, if I don't, if elders don't repent, 
you as a church have a recourse. In 1 Timothy 5, 19, 20, it says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. This is, this is church discipline saying that, that, that elders are, are under the church in that process as well. So we definitely need to be watching our lives. We also need to watch our doctrine. We know that Christ is the foundation of the church, 1 Corinthians 3.11 and, and, and we also know that, that, that the church is built on the foundation of the, the apostles and the prophets from Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. And, and that we need to know that doctrine then is the, is the glue that holds the church together. It's the glue that holds the church together. I was talking to a man the other day in a, in a church in our very fellowship who is bemoaning the fact that our, our fellowship is, is kind of disintegrating. And they're not really working together and serving together. And I said, well, the problem is, is our, our fellowship doesn't believe the same things anymore. Our fellowship doesn't believe what it used to believe. It doesn't have any doctrinal unity. In fact, in this very conversation, I found a couple of key ways that, that this man is, is, is going against our church's statement of faith or our, our fellowship's statement of faith. So doctrine is the glue that holds the church together. And we are living in dangerous times doctrinally. And so we need men, the church needs men who are, are grounded in the Word of God, who know and love the Word of God, and who are going to be strong to stand up for the Word of God. These are the men who are going to be called to teach biblical truth and to biblically stand against false teaching. Let's just quickly look again back at, at Acts twenty twenty eight. You see, it's the Holy Spirit that makes them overseers. The church doesn't actually make someone an elder. It's the Holy Spirit who makes a man an elder as he works in his heart to develop the qualifications in him and as he puts the desire for that office in his heart. And it's the church's role to recognize those who the Holy Spirit has qualified and then to affirm them in that role. And so it's imperative that we as a church have a right understanding of elders. In my time as a Christian, I've seen deacons in roles of spiritual leadership. I've seen pastors as CEOs with a board of directors. I've seen solo leadership. I've seen women as elders. I've seen men who do not line up with the biblical qualifications but are chosen because of their personality or their business acumen. And all of these are unbiblical. And churches who are led this way will be led astray. But now a charge to us. Do you see your pastors as gifts? That's how Paul refers to them, as gifts to the church. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13, Paul says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. I esteem David Vogt very highly because of his work in this church, because of his love for the Lord, and because of his love for you. In Hebrews 13, verses 7 and 17, the writer says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. 
Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Men here from Team Challenge, are you doing this with your leaders? Anthony is a gift to you. Your leaders have been given as gifts to you. Has your submission to, to him been and to them been, been an occasion for his groaning? Probably has, hasn't it? May, may you repent of those things and to see the gift that your leaders are here in this church. If David is affirmed as an elder, you will be called to remember him, to consider the outcome of his way of life, and to imitate him, to obey him, and submit to him because he is keeping watch over your soul as one who will give an account. Brothers and sisters, we need your prayers because we are carrying not just our burdens, but we're carrying your burdens too. Leaders will be under greater attack, not just from the enemy outside the gates, but from friends within as well. So may we esteem those that God has placed as, as shepherds in this church. But just like evangelists aren't the only ones who do evangelism, shepherds aren't the only ones who do shepherding. We're all called to shepherd one another. There, there's 35 specific, over 35 specific commands in the New Testament epistles that are, that are to one another. They're the one another commands. And we're all called to be doing all of those things. To love one another, to bear with one another, to admonish one another, to spur one another on to love and, and good deeds. This is all part of shepherding. And we're all to shepherd one another's souls. But again, there are those that, that God calls specifically and uniquely to, 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 to fulfill that role of a shepherd in the church office. There are men who are here that, that I believe who, who are becoming qualified to serve in this capacity. And so, so we're on the lookout for a few good men who are going to be gifts to the church. We're going to serve in this, in this selfless way. We need to be praying for David. We need to be praying for his family in the, in the lead up to this call. This is, this is something that, that he does not take lightly. If you know David at all, you know that he does not take this lightly. So he needs your prayers. His family needs your prayers. Well, that's it. That's the, the gifts that we're going to be examining. Next week, we're going to be going back to, to 1 Corinthians, and, and we're going to be in chapter 13. I'm so excited to see what the Lord is going to, to show us from 1 Corinthians 13, because it's central to the, to the, the, the book, uh, to the letter of, of 1 Corinthians, and it's, it's also central to our church. And so as we, as we prepare our hearts for that this week, is, I would encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 13 several times. And ask the Lord, again, it's, it, it ties everything together that, that God would give you a love for Him and love for His church so that we can live these things out in His church and that we can serve together and glorify God 
together in the power of his Holy Spirit for the glory of his name. Let's pray.